I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico. And I'm Dean Detloff. Dean, I'm so full of tofurkey because it's American Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, I Just an announcement. Imagine. Nothing really special about that. <laughs> uh, I'm full of some blueberry pie that uh, Emily made in our apartment um, because <laughs> we're American expats living in Toronto and nobody knows that it's Thanksgiving. <laughs> nice. That sounds good, actually. Well, we already had one, so... Man, side note, okay, I didn't plan to talk about this, but Emily was telling me the history of Thanksgiving today and in Canada, and I'm not 100% sure about how all these details really work out, but here's the rumor that I'll tell you without having done any other research. Uh, The rumor that I heard is that Thanksgiving was created in Canada to combat um, Darwin's origin of species and evolution because it was like a weird Christian nationalist uh, establishment to try to bring people into like a good Canadian Christian identity with the state. And also to say thanks uh, in Canada for not being in the middle of a civil war like the United States. So just an extremely (laughs) bizarre origin. Holy crap, that is a bizarre origin. Like I said, well, there's probably more to it, but I'm not going to go look at that right now. <laughs> well, on this podcast, we believe in evolution, and also <laughs> we think the Civil War was one worth fighting. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, extremely on brand for Canada. Um, all right, that's not what we're talking about this week, though. We are talking about class, kind of. <laughs> Last week, we talked about how class analysis is really important for Christians, and how Christians inoculate themselves against thinking about class. There's lots of ways that Christians don't like to do it or try not to think about it. Um, We also made some digressions into, like, complicating this idea in order to demonstrate how useful and dynamic class analysis can be. And I think in light of that, we also have a responsibility in this episode to do a little bit more uh, tugging at that um, idea of class and class oppression, by talking through the problem where people on the left reduce all struggles down to class struggle, which is a huge problem um, for some on the left, uh, for some Marxists, but more generally just kind of some internet lefties, you might say. Uh, we've definitely mentioned class reduction a handful of times in the podcast before, but here's a whole, ep- whole episode about it and what you should know. So we can talk about class reductionism explicitly We'll talk about some of the contributions and corrections that other people make when it comes to the ways that different conditions maybe factor into that analysis of class. But the real key here is to 
try to demonstrate that after we spent a whole episode talking about class, um, class by itself also isn't completely adequate to explain material conditions or oppression or liberation, even if you want to get a handle on capitalism. So Matt, why don't I uh, send us right over to you to introduce the problem here? What's class reductionism about? Yeah, well, let me tell you. Well, <laughs> last week we were talking about how, you know, the main um, the main motivator of history is uh, the class against class struggle, right? That's what Marxism is all about. Um, but class reduction is a sort of misstep, I think, in applying uh, or analyzing class. So class reduction is like a political analysis that ends up leaning way too heavily on locating class as the main motivator of of uh, of history, of struggle, of contradictions within capitalism and all these things, right? It's one of the motivating forces, but I think uh, locating it as the only motivating force or like not understanding how to understand other forces along with them kind of ends up being a problem. So the problem with um, class reduction and like thinking about it in just terms of class is that it undercuts the influence of other struggles like race and gender and everything else on the particular way capitalism works and exploits people. Yeah, I mean, I think on like the the internet left, Dean, like you mentioned a minute ago, has like a real tendency to uh, misunderstand, be willfully ignorant of, and just not be very kind towards the whole idea of identity politics. And I think there's some criticism mm -hmm. to be made of identity politics, but I think that if you understand it the right way, um, you know, you understand it uh, as a sort of co conspiratorial force, I guess, against uh, in, in the oppression of people, I think it ends up really helping more than it does uh, hurt. So all that to say class reduction is bad, and we want to be better understanders of the oppression of people. Um, so not just class, but all of these other, um, all these other factors as well. So that's what we're going to do. Um, I think that this like the the friction between Marxist like class reduction and um, identity politics, I think it comes out like the most clear when people talk about racism and capitalism and like the relation between those two things. Um, that's probably the place where like I think this this becomes like the most clear or, you know, it's the place where you see it happen the most. But but um, it, there's other places that it happens just as much, just maybe less obviously uh, less obviously happening. So anyways, I thought it'd be good to kind of get the conversation going and uh, use this quote by Stuart Hall, who is a really cool uh, Caribbean and British cultural theorist and also Marxist. He was a real legit guy. Just Google <laughs> Stuart Hall. Do yourself a favor. <laughs> uh, if you're in cultural studies, if you do communication studies or media studies, he's a guy you got to know about. Um, and people don't read him enough. Stuart Hall. There you go. Anyway, Stuart Hall says this about race. He says race is a modality in which class is lived. It's also the medium in which class relations are experienced. It determines some modes of struggle. So there's a lot more to say. Uh, I mean, Stuart Hall writes about this a lot, actually. Um, but I think this is a really interesting way to put it, though, right? That um, there is class, like that's a material factor in the lives of every single person. But it's always, um, I mean, tinted by, influenced by, completely structured by uh, the racial experience of a person. So you can't just kind of like, you know, narrow in on one thing or the other. It has to be kind of both of these things understood together. So it's just like a, a good a good place to start thinking through it. Um, yeah. What do you think, Dean? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the way that you laid it out is exactly right um, in terms of, you know, like like class is important to understand. Right. Uh, and the problem with a sort of liberal expression of identity politics is that it doesn't bring class into it. Right. And it's true that class is a. 
uh, a radicalizing moment in the kind of network of all kinds of oppression, right? Like, um, once you understand a class basis for capitalism, you can start building solidarity in interesting ways. And you can also understand how to intervene in, you know, doing things like strikes and why labor is important and all that kind of stuff. But if, like you said, Matt, if you don't understand the way that class is uh, permeated by all kinds of other dominating factors that are not reducible to class, but are kind of mutually constitutive for an oppressive society with class, then you're going to end up actually undercutting any way that you have to build solidarity. I mean, I always think of that quote at the very beginning of our our uh, every podcast that we do <laughs> from Amoria, where she says in in our intro, um, you know, if you if you don't attend to something like anti-black racism, then you you can't build class solidarity. It holds you back from doing that. So um, in that sense, too, it's almost like if you really want to understand class, you have to understand how class relates to everything else. Otherwise, you're not going to be very uh, successful, both as an analyst or as an organizer. Yeah, I think that's right. You got to have them both. <laughs> um, that's a <laughs> that's a good one. Speaking of Amaria, um, that reminds me of another quote <laughs> from her, actually, um, from an essay that we talked with her about not too long ago. Um, and during this past summer, uh, she wrote an article in the Bias magazine uh, called Christian Order and Racial Order, What Cedric Robinson Has to Teach Us Today About Racial Capitalism. I think it is um, really helpful in making this larger point about race and class together. So this is what Maria says. The mistake that many Christian socialists make is reducing a radical understanding of law, order, and economy to class and money. The inadequacies of these analyses become clear as soon as the white leftists attempt to substitute class terms like proletarian as the primary agents of an uprising that is specifically linked to black and radical tradition. While understanding the operations of class is crucial for any radical movement, one rooted in black radical understandings of economy recognizes that race, specifically blackness, is foundational to the imagination of order because it's foundational to the imagination of existence in the West. So what Amaria is getting at here is really pretty good, right? That you can't just reduce everyone to the proletariat. Uh, you have to recognize the ways that the proletariat is racialized, um, and coded sort of as uh, as you know part of the the law and order sort of class or um, or not right um, these play into the ways we think about labor and the way that we think about race and they're like kind of inexplicably tied up right you can't uh, you can't just shake them loose from one another so easily um, yeah I, I think that it's a it's a pretty good place to get started in thinking about racial capitalism and and um, and you know not class reduction. Yeah, I mean, okay, so you've introduced a, a great and important term, racial capitalism. Uh, we should take a minute to sort of parse that out, uh, thinking through Amoria's stuff as well. Okay, so, you know, one one way of doing a class reductionist story about how the world works and how society works is to say, look, sure, there's lots of oppression in society, there's gender inequality, there's racial inequality, all that stuff is real, but deep down, ultimately... The ultimate oppression is class. And if you could figure out how to solve the class problem, you would figure out all the rest of it, right? They would all sort of tumble like dominoes that all these other oppressions are just ways to divide the working class. So if you can just kind of uh, put them off to the side, then you can get serious, you know. Um, what I think is really interesting about something like racial capitalism, which is a, uh, a term that was introduced by Cedric Robinson, or at least developed by Cedric Robinson, and then uh, further developed by all kinds of other folks is that it tries to say, well, you can't just talk about class as this sort of isolated thing. 
anytime you talk about the development of capitalism, you're always also talking about the invention of race as a as a particular productive way of understanding in the West, in the world. And so race and capitalism always come together. Um, one of the most uh, controversial, but I think really compelling um, imaginative exercises that racial capitalism forces you to do is to say, could there be a kind of capitalist society without racism? And racial capitalism says no. It would always be moving uh, race around, potentially. Maybe it wouldn't be the same kind of racism that we see today, just like racism before uh uh, anti-black racism looked a bit different. That's kind of Cedric Robinson's interesting genealogical research. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, capitalism would always kind of generate racialized understandings. And I think that is like a really compelling point. And the line at the end here of what the passage you read, read from Memoria is uh, helpful, right? She says that uh, race, specifically blackness, is foundational to the imagination of order because it's foundational to the imagination of existence in the West. So if you were like a bad kind of materialist, a lazy materialist, a vulgar one, as one might say, uh, you you might say imagination. We don't need to think about that at all. Right. Uh, that's idealist uh, an idealist way of thinking about the world. What we really need is the material. But what Amoria and, and uh, so many other theorists try to say is if you really want to understand the material, you better get your head around how the imagination works. Right. Because it has real effects on how we organize society and how people actually really live. So I think racial capitalism is one great tradition that kind of sets up some other coordinates for thinking about um, how all these things go together. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty good. Um, I do. I, I actually really appreciate too the, uh, you know, can you imagine a capitalism without racism? I think it's a helpful thought experiment. You could probably take it in the other direction too, though. Can you imagine socialism <laughs> and being like with racism and like, right. yes, yes, you can. Right. Yeah. Changing the economic order of things doesn't necessarily change the racial order of things. So um, I think it's a, a helpful uh, criticism and way of thinking all the way through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, another really important theorist just to continue on this racial capitalism track is Robin D.G. Kelly. He was a student of Robinson and also a just really fantastic interpreter of Robinson's work and has done a lot of great stuff himself by the way i think we've mentioned this book on the show before but if you ever want to read an extremely cool thing about communism and christianity read the book hammer and hoe that kelly wrote which is a history book about um black sharecroppers in alabama and the cpusa lots of really cool christian stuff in there anyway uh this is not from that <laughs> but uh <laughs> kelly uh, also explains this really well in a passage where he says capitalism and racism did not break from the old order but rather evolved from it to produce a modern world system of racial capitalism dependent on slavery, violence, imperialism, and genocide. Capitalism was racial not because of some conspiracy to divide workers or justify slavery and dispossession, but because racialism had already permeated Western feudal society. Now, I think what's important here is um, race does divide workers and it does justify slavery and dispossession, right? Like it does function that way. But uh, what Kelly is suggesting is it's not the case that like some some brilliant bourgeois business owner one day was like, aha, I know how to stop these union folks from organizing. We'll tell them that some of them are like this and some of them are like that. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, it's actually way more complicated because uh, racialized understandings um, precede capitalist political economy and they all end up doing very weird things as capitalism develops. That's right. It didn't just come out of nowhere. It's uh, it already existed. Uh, speaking of that, actually, here's here's one more good quote I'll throw at you. And then maybe we can have a, a bigger discussion about yeah. this. 
Uh, this is from um, uh, an article that Nick Estes and Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz wrote in uh, the monthly review a few months back. Um, so this is what they say about racial capitalism. They say capitalism was not a radical break or rupture from European feudalism or the old order. In many ways, it was a continuation of it. Racialism was seated in European social orders before the dawn of capitalism, creating racial hierarchies that formed early class structures. The racially subordinated Europeans, if they were not outright eliminated, normally labored and worked the land on behalf of the ruling classes. Immigrant workers were usually placed at the bottom of the racial hierarchy. So I think what's really helpful here, too, in thinking about capitalism and like, I mean, racial capitalism as a as a helpful sort of like systemic analysis is that, you know, some of the myths that we tell ourselves about the development of capitalism, even as Marxists, right, is that it was in some ways progressive. And I think that's a helpful myth to dispel. Um, you know, the the sense sometimes even Marx says things like, you know, capitalists are the really revolutionary class. They're always revolutionizing the means of production. They're always kind of um, finding more and more ways to suck up um, surplus labor and your labor time and like, you know, trying to get everyone on board as a worker. Right. Capitalism does that. But I think unless you really attend to things like anti-black racism or the colonization of the United States and the, you know, <laughs> The genocide of native people right unless you attend to like the ways that capitalism does function sort of racially you kind of miss a lot of the ways that capitalism really works it's not just about formulating a, a big homogenous chunk of of labor but it has a lot of texture to it when you really get down to it mm -hmm. yeah i think that's right um i think it's also helpful because you know as important as marx is and you know we're marxists for sure like he's very important uh, as important as he is, he does uh, also need to be supplemented by all kinds of other um, stuff and even challenged and criticized by other kinds of discourses. Um, racial capitalism is one of them, I think. But I always think of like, there's a really interesting um, theorist named Samir Amin, who passed away not long ago, but he contributed a lot to the monthly review as well. And he did lots of studies on imperialism and colonialism. And he has this really interesting theory about imperialism where you know, like Lenin said that imperialism is the highest form of capitalism, that once you get to a certain stage of capitalist development, then they there's no choice but to be an imperial power. But Samir Amin actually says that uh, imperialism and capitalism are always together from the very, very beginning, like all the way back to colonization, obviously, right? The, an important imperialist uh, moment in history. And I think that it's important to attend to those kinds of analyses, right, of people who are... Um, looking at oppression in a, a multifaceted sort of way and not trying to like throw Marx under the bus, but to say like, look, there's more that we have to pile on here if we really want to understand what's going on. Yeah. Um, I like that idea though <laughs> from a mean, right? Uh, it's not that uh, imperialism is the highest form of capitalism. It's that uh, imperialism is just, it's just capitalism. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. um, it's pretty cool. Uh, all right. Well, let's turn like I know we're going to like we're sort of just going to run through some of these things um, and not uh, not pay as much attention to them as we could. But let's turn really quickly to talk about gender and capitalism as well, because that's one of those sort of that's like one of the vertices of um, of identity politics that people talk about, but uh, sometimes neglect. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to say about the ways that gender and capitalism sort of work. Uh, co-collaboratively. I don't know why I keep, I keep using those types of words, but they are. <laughs> they they work together to sort of uh, produce a certain type of workforce. Um, 
And, you know, uh, there are things that Marx and Engels both say about women in capitalism that are kind of interesting, but they're definitely not uh, exhaustive <laughs> or even like all that helpful in a lot of ways. Um, so, I mean, th there's, a, there's a few different places to go to. Um, Engels talks about it really explicitly um, in, in some places. But in the Communist Manifesto, there's this really uh, interesting chunk that uh, Marx and Engels uh, parse out some, some things about the role of women in capitalism that I think is interesting. But, like, I mean, you'll, you'll see the shortcomings here pretty quickly. <laughs> so this is from the Communist Manifesto. The bourgeois sees his wife as a mere instrument of production. He hears that instruments of production are to be exploited in common and naturally can come to no other conclusion that the lot of being common to all will likewise fall to women. He has not even a suspicion that the real point aimed at is to do away with the status of women as mere instruments of production. So there's actually, I mean, within the, the context of the Communist Manifesto, there's this kind of like ironic sort of play that Marx and Engels are doing here where, um, uh, you know, the bourgeoisie have this sort of like um jab that they take at communists you know like well you know are they even going to hold their women in common or something like that mm -hmm. and uh marx is like well um <laughs> that's basically the way the bourgeois think of their their wives to begin with um you know it's just instruments of production that they can you know exploit in common and you know okay so marx is onto something here that there's like this thing about women in capitalism but you know this doesn't actually get anything systemic this is more of like a jab or like a, an ironic sort of turn um, than there's like real analysis. So I think there's a lot more to say about gender and capitalism than Marx uh, or Engels writes about. It's important to mention that Engels and Marx both uh, think that women's liberation is very important um, and, and uniquely important for sure. Uh, and there's a whole tradition of Marxist feminism that has found lots of intriguing uh, texts in Marx and Engels both and also have found it necessary to sort of push beyond them or, or radicalize them more than Marx and Engels ever did. There are some kind of suggestive ways of understanding Engels, Engels in particular, as potentially suggesting that um, gender oppression precedes uh, class oppression. And so there's this kind of, um, you know, th this uh, this preceding form of of oppression that ends up informing capitalism in a unique sort of way. Uh, there's debate among Marxists, but. One of the, if you wanted one person who I think offers a, a kind of forceful and interesting argument to this effect, it would actually be uh, the work of Lucy Rigore. There's like a ton of Marxist feminists, and she's one of the weirdest ones. <laughs> so maybe that's why I'm suggesting her because she is extremely bizarre. But uh, she has some really sophisticated analyses of um, gender under capitalism, and uh, she really kind of like highlights and runs runs with that insight uh, from Engels and others, and then um runs way past them i think uh but in, in in ways that sort of illustrate right that the marxist tradition has these openings for understanding other forms of oppression but we have to uh step through that door a lot more readily than marx and engels did that's cool looser gray you're right <laughs> it's a wild place to start but i guess just just get into it you know she's awesome um someone else yeah yeah for sure uh, someone else you could check out, too, who is, I think, a little bit more straightforward <laughs> is Silvia Federici. I mentioned Federici on the show last week, but I'm going to mention her again uh, because I think she does a really I mean, she does a really great job of, um, I think, parsing the um, the ways that capitalism works with the idea of patriarchy to produce uh, a workforce without people even like really understanding that's the case. Mm -hmm. um, I 
I feel like, I mean, Federici is something I read, I think, when I was like in a master's degree program. And I think it's probably been one of the most important things I've ever read just because it's uh, man, it's a powerful it's a powerful essay that really explains the ways that uh, gender and capitalism are tied up together. Hmm. Um, so let, let's see. So she has a, an essay called Wages for Housework. And uh, the essay is really fascinating because it's it is like lots of Marxist analysis, but it's also like a pretty actionable type of activist writing. Like she's, you know, she has a program. She's trying to get you to do something. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm going to read this a little bit here and then we can talk about it. So uh, Federici says this it is important to recognize that when we speak of housework, we are not speaking of a job as other jobs, but we are speaking of the most pervasive manipulation the most subtle and mystified violence that capitalism has ever perpetrated against any section of the working class. A big claim, but um, I think she's on to something. <laughs> True. Under capitalism, every worker is manipulated and exploited, and his or her relation to capital is totally mystified. The wage gives the impression of a fair deal. You work and you get paid. Hence, you and your boss are equal, while in the reality, the wage, rather than paying for the work you do, hides all the unpaid work that goes into its profit. To have a wage means to be part of a social contract, and there's no doubt concerning its meaning. You work not because you like it, but because it comes naturally to you, but because it's the only condition under which you are allowed to live. So there's a lot going on here, but I think this is kind of like the crux of it. Um, you know, like you work for a wage and like there's a certain sort of like straightforward logic to it. You know, you're selling your labor time. Um, you're, you know, your boss is getting the profit. This is the arrangement, right? But, um, but housework is this like interesting type of labor because it doesn't have a wage and it is like even more mystified. Like why do women do it is kind of her, um, her, the, the big idea behind her essay. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's expected of them, not because like, it's like a neutral sort of, um, exchange of labor and capital because, you know, women don't get paid for housework. Instead, it's like this is just what women naturally do. It comes naturally to them, so of course they do it. It's this whole, t it's this whole like wild, um, I mean, just like she says, mystification of labor and the way in the relationship to capital that women share that like just kind of flies under the radar of every single person unless they actually think about it. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a really fascinating way to go about it because like you know it, it's wild too because like you know none of our society works whatsoever without the domestic labor of of women or you know I mean whoever's doing it but like in in within like the um within the gender norms that capitalism must sort of set up to to um, to like establish a a workforce of domestic domestic workers, right? Like no one's paying attention to that. It just all seems like that's just the way it always has been. And that's the way it will always be. And like, there's no sort of way to overturn that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's a really fascinating uh, way to point out the ways that gender and capitalism um, work together to produce a certain type of labor, right? One paid and one not, but they both seem sort of like the right way to live, live in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> so Federici is way more straightforward than Irigaray for sure. But I'll uh, say more about Irigaray anyway, just because she's she's she has a really interesting um, analysis of gender and capitalism. So she also studied psychoanalysis. So she's especially invested in like the family structure and how it works. And she to put it like simply, she has this argument where she says the family under capitalism, the bourgeois family, is created in such a way that the man is essentially expected to be the the capital accumulator. So the man goes out into the world, does work and makes culture and gets money and then comes back to the home 
and then they can do whatever they want with the capital that they receive. You know, it might be it might not be a lot of capital or it might just be a wage or something like that. You know, the the uh, the scraps of capital or whatever. But at the end of the day, the man is sort of still the they they retain the the culture work um, expectation, whereas the woman is expected to stay home and do that domestic labor, like you were just saying as her contribution to sort of making sure that the engines of capital can still go out from the home and come back <laughs> in the form of uh, a male um, husband. And and she also has to take responsibility for raising these kids, but the kids end up uh, thinking that the dad is, is very cool because the dad goes out into the world and is a symbol of the world, right? So there's all kinds of psychoanalytic stuff going on. But what I think is really fascinating is Rigore says, you know, if we abolished capitalism tomorrow, that would be great. Um, but because this pattern of domination has structured how we grow up and live for so long in also a kind of economic sense, it would not just end gender oppression immediately because for a rigore, like, uh, men don't know what it's like to live in an arrangement outside of that. And women also don't know what it's like to live in an arrangement outside of that either. And, you know, can you make certain progress under capitalism to upset those kind of gender norms? Uh, you know, of course you can. Like people are doing it every day and that's amazing, right? That's one one choke point in capitalism that people should keep forcing. But uh, a rigorous point is so much more profound, which is to say uh, you have to do these things at the same time, right? Like you have to fight the, the class side of it and the logic of capital accumulation. And you have to fight the sort of... Um, gender like the reproduction of gendered understandings that uh contribute to that kind of accumulation mm -hmm. yeah that um <laughs> that is a different way to put a very similar idea yeah exactly um, <laughs> it's cool well i mean i think it goes to i mean it speaks to the ways that like liberal types of feminism kind of aren't great <laughs> Yeah, you know, like uh, that that see like uh, a woman being the CEO of Raytheon or something as like uh, as a win for feminism or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like that's it's not actually if you think about it. Um, but I think that's a um, a good a, a better way to kind of get a handle on that relationship, right? To uh, to take these things together. Um, all right, Dean. So we've talked about two types of like ways identity politics. Um, connect with um the understanding of class and that's really fascinating but let's turn the page in the, a wildly different direction <laughs> um so let's see it, uh, a hallmark of the magnificast is that um at least one once in every 10 episodes we will talk about paul Verlio. <laughs> uh it's when we listen when we uh <laughs> when we when we got the contract from the big the big podcasting firm that we really do work for it's in there we have to talk about paul Verlio every 10 episodes there's no way around it. So we let's do that. If we don't. <laughs> that's that's it. That's the secret here. Um, so let's see. What can we say about Paul Virilio? Um, If you are not familiar with him, he is. Well, he was. He's dead. R.I.P. Um, Paul Virilio was a Catholic, French, urbanist, an artist, an architect, and anarchist, kind of. Mm -hmm. um, all of these things. He taught architecture. He was a stained glass artist for a minute. He um, he built this absolutely wild ass church in France. That's really cool. Um, he wrote, though, a lot about um, the ways that urbanism and um, everything is basically moved by militarism. So, you know, like when it comes to Marx, 
um, you know, for Marx, the, the history of the entire world is the history of class struggle. Uh, but for Virilio, it's the uh, the history of the entire world uh, kind of progresses at the speed of its weapon system. So where everything for Marx is about labor, everything for, for Virilio is about military. Um, and, you know, basically in his work, it's, it ends up being sort of a competing theory of history with Marx. But I think there's some interesting things we can draw from it uh, rather than just writing it off altogether. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, it is a very different pivot from what we we're just talking about with identity politics, but it's a nice way of uh, illustrating why class reductionism, you know, can't get you as far as uh, trying to build a lot of other things together can. Um, you know, one thing that uh, without going into the weeds of Virilio's entire <laughs> theory, which is extremely weird, um, one thing that he says that I think is really interesting is that uh we on the left, people have a tendency to look just at class as the ultimate logic that drives history. But Virilio thinks that the military, if you kind of ignore the logic that the military has in itself, which is a different kind of logic than capitalists, then you will inevitably be probably like bowled over by militarism, um, no matter what kind of gains you make as a proletarian class. So one example that he always gives is Chile, uh, so for people who don't know, in 1970, a guy named Salvador Allende was democratically elected as the socialist leader of Chile, and he was great. Everybody loved him. He was a great guy, good Marxist, etc. Um, he was deposed in a coup three, late, three years later by General Augusto Pinochet, and that ushered in a long time of uh, military dictatorship in Chile. And really appoints at that as a way of saying, you know, the the optimism of a certain kind of socialism says that if you just got your hands on the state, uh, if the class was running it, the right class was was running it, then you could kind of bring the military to heel or use the military as a tool. But really, says the military class has different kinds of ways of understanding its own self-preservation that are different than the bourgeois class. And uh, if you don't sort of see that um you know, when push comes to shove, you will lose because you do not have the guns. <laughs> and uh, that's a pretty compelling point, I think. Yeah, it is totally. Um, there's a book that Paul Virilio wrote called Popular Defense and Ecological Struggles, um, sort of a, a book he wrote later in his career. But uh, there's a really interesting, I guess, analysis that he's giving to like the, the military in France sort of after World War Two um, in the ways that it it, uh, it becomes kind of like this autonomous uh, entity, you know, it's not something that's controlled even really by the people in any sort of democratic sense. You know, there's a, a political class that has some kind of influence on it. But at the same time, like it ends up being this sort of thing in and of itself that like, I don't know, like, what would <laughs> what would you do? Right. Even if the uh, even if the proletariat uh, formed some type of uh, revolutionary organization and what were successful at uh, winning the workers to their side and like leading the way to a, a, a worker state like what would you do against this organization, right? Like, would they join you? Probably not. <laughs> what would you do if they didn't? These are like some really interesting questions that I think Paul Virilio um, gets you to ask when you kind of try on the theory. Um, I think that there are some problems with it in the long run, mm -hmm. but I think it's also like a type of analysis that Marxists can really adopt um, and uh, and try to integrate into uh, their understanding of politics. I think it's it's worth doing for sure. Yeah, it's helpful, too, because, um, you know, one thing that I disagree with uh, for Virilio is that, you know, maybe Marxists do have to be part of the military, right? <laughs> like, um, not not in the United States, perhaps, but like Cuba, 
you can't understand Cuba without understanding the fact that actually militarism is extremely important for Cubans to defend the gains that they made in the revolution and still today. Um, you could say the same for a place like Venezuela and, you know, lots of places around the world, right? Uh, where it matters that there's a, a military presence. Um, but I think that what Virilio does is he kind of acts as a conscience to get you to recognize that, you know, what you really do want, whether you're a Marxist or some other person on the left, is the the end of all war, right? Marxists still take themselves to be people of peace, even if they think that you have to use violent means sometimes to get there. And uh, or at least they think sometimes violent means are uh, justifiable in certain situations, not all of them. Um, but all that to say, uh, it, it Virilio's sort of competing theory is like an important uh, way to chastise certain Marxists that, in my opinion, sometimes get a little too pumped up about like shooting people, which I think is not a healthy thing for building a, a society where lots of people can live healthy and happy lives. Yeah, I think that's um, yeah. Describing Paul Virilio as a conscious is really great. There's also some strategic things that he suggests that have really easy intersections with Marxism. Like, I mean, so I mean, Paul Virilio wants it to to scale down the militarization, right? Like that. It's, putting it lightly, I think is probably um, one of the sort of political goals that he might have, even though it's probably hard to identify as a political goal. Um, but, you know, like putting putting the brakes on things is a thing for Paul Virilio, um, who has a lot to say about speed. Um, and he does end up saying a little bit about labor here and there in his books. Um, and the working class as a class is sort of complicated for Virilio because he sees them as sort of a, an extension, I think, of the, the military state that exists. But at the same time, um, workers pumping the brakes and going on strike is like, I think, a, a, a still a Virilio and a Virilioian. God. A Virilian idea, yeah. maybe. Yeah, <laughs> there, there's an all I'm trying to say, though, is there there's an intersection there between, um, you know, the way that Marxists think about unions and labor um, and Virilio. So it's not like these are incompatible ideas, um, to say the least. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, we could say a thousand more things about Virilio, uh, but I think the the key, I guess, is to say if you commit yourself to a certain class reductionist uh, memeing on the Internet or something, you're going to just miss out on a lot of analytic tools, whether it has to do with uh, understanding things like race and gender or what people wrongly, I think, malign as identity politics all the way down, whether it's that side or whether it's actually building a, a really sophisticated analysis of uh you know, what it means to participate in a, a big political struggle or to understand world history. Uh, you have to you have to draw on some other stuff. Right. Um, and that's a, a huge thing. Why don't we maybe we could pivot toward the end here talking a bit about how to integrate all this into a certain um, way of thinking. I mean, the left has tried to do this a lot. Uh, there's maybe like successive generations of trying to think through how to put all this stuff together, like I always think of um, there's an incredible uh, black woman communist who was a member of the CPUSA for a long time named Claudia Jones. She wrote quite a lot about uh, the intersections of gender, race and class as a communist herself. Um, you know, she she really did a lot of amazing work there in the activist circles of like the 60s and 70s in the US. They often talked about like double or triple jeopardy. So like. Yeah, class oppression, everybody's in jeopardy. But like, let's say that you're a minoritized group, then you might be um, in double jeopardy. Or if you are a woman in a minoritized group, then you might be facing triple jeopardy. That was one way of trying to get at that. 
um, and like a successful organizing vocabulary. But I think the one of the most promising and interesting ones today that I think is really wrongly, like intentionally misunderstood on the left is uh, intersectionality. Maybe it would be good to talk about that at the end here. Um, how does that sound? Yeah, it's a good idea. Let's talk about it. <laughs> okay. Um, I just, I felt like I needed to pause and get your permission before I force this into that conversation. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you always have my permission to talk about things. Good. Uh, let me, uh, let me go ahead and read a, a really neat thing from The Guardian on Kimberly Crenshaw, who is the person who introduced intersectionality in a big way, um, and then we can talk through it. So there was this article just in November, I think, maybe earlier this month even, yeah, uh, in The Guardian, where she, it, it's sort of like explaining her theory and what she thinks about it, etc. But they touch on class in particular in the article, and here's what it says. Crenshaw's work asked people to think of the privileges they brought into a space and how, through their actions or silences, they contributed to the problem of racism. And we could, we could add also sexism and lots of other kinds of isms. Because of this, uh, intersectionality is often criticized as something undermining the building of a multiracial working class movement. In response, Crenshaw argues that the U.S. will never be able to respond to the problem of class until it interrogates what she describes as the politically stabilizing role of white supremacy in propping up American hierarchies. Quote, this has been the case since slavery. Why did so many white farmers who were impoverished by this economic system make themselves available, amenable, even champions of an economic system that did not, that didn't benefit them? Important question. Uh, she goes on to say, when people tell me that intersectionality marginalizes class, I say no. Intersectionality is what we need to understand why it's been so difficult to mount a fully class-centric movement. And I think that is really an important key. I mean, if you heard nothing in like the last uh, 40 minutes of just rambling on about other people, <laughs> like uh, this is really where the, the rubber hits the road, I think, that um, mm -hmm. failing to understand something like intersectionality is actually why it's really difficult to build class solidarity in the first place. So maybe we could sort of draw that out some more, Matt. Um, any thoughts on intersectionality? Where do you think it gets us? Yeah, I think it's really important. I mean, it's um, Kimberly Crenshaw. I mean, OK, let's say this. Kimberly Crenshaw is a, I think, legal scholar. Um, I'm pretty sure that's true. Yeah, that's right. Um, a lot of her early work around intersectionality was about like the um, the ways that uh, women of color were, were and were not uh, reporting domestic violence and also around the ways um, uh, uh, the ways that women of color were, were not being, um, I mean, specifically black women were not being like hired for particular jobs, but it was sort of like flying under the radar because of this like intersectional understanding or I'm sorry, because of a lack of an intersectional understanding. So she's not a Marxist, but she's bringing like all of these tools to the table um, and yeah, just like you're saying, I don't think you can really understand class correctly unless you have some theory that um, can help you kind of tie these other um, identity markers into that theory of class, right? Like you, you're not going to understand any of this without uh, w without an understanding of of race and gender, and like the ways that um, uh, you know, like. Um, heterosexuality becomes sort of like normalized and people who don't express themselves in exactly that way get pushed to the sides or the way that the trans people get pushed to the sides, right? Like all of these things kind of like factor into the ways we experience class and work. Um, they're all kind of interdependent with one another, I think, in the ways that they um, form situations of oppression in people. So 
yeah, I think that somebody like Crenshaw at least gives us the opportunity and some like language to get at the way these things are all connected. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, it also like it drives me off the wall. I think when uh, Marxists in particular get really bent out of shape about intersectionality, um, and a lot of them do. I'm here to tell you it's a bad habit. <laughs> you shouldn't adopt it. Um, but I think there's two reasons it bothers me. One is that it uh, wrongly assumes that everyone, if everyone would just listen to your specific idea of how Marxism works, the world would just sort of fix itself. And I think that is actually a bizarre mm-hmm. liberal kind of fantasy. <laughs> um, you know, mm-hmm. that's like what Joe Biden thinks. It's just that he's not a Marxist. <laughs> so uh, don't do that. That's a weak analysis. Um, but the second is that uh, it fails to really reckon with the fact that intersectionality is actually trying to build a popular movement that can uh, address class issues. And, you know, Marxists like Marxists work with all kinds of people that are not Marxists and all kinds of movements that sort of share maybe a strategic goal, but don't necessarily share every single goal. And I think intersectionality is like a great sort of example of where it's actually good to have a productive dialogue, both because um, the way Marxists understand class can contribute a lot to one sort of um, dimension of intersectional analysis. Uh, and intersectional analysis can then also open up that Marxist uh, theory of class to lots of other dimensions. So I don't know. I, I sort of uh, I tend to see intersectionality as a way of just affirming that, like, you got to get everybody in the room who knows something about oppression and have them all talk about it at once. And then you'll figure out what's going <laughs> on rather than being like, okay, I only ever talk to like the people at this table in the cafeteria and uh, that's it. So don't be those people. (laughs) That's bad news. Yeah, totally. I think that's a good way of putting it. (laughs) Don't be those type of people. Sit at different tables. Have one big table, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what kind of arrangement (laughs) of furniture we need here. But listen, it's not it's not just the one where it's only Marxist talking. All right, so let's just like do a quick recap here. Last week, we talked about all of the reasons why Christians need to be attentive to the idea of class and kind of figure out uh, class analysis and how it might benefit them, right? Like you, you want to be a good Christian. You want to love your neighbor just as yourself because <laughs> that's <laughs> in the Bible. So uh, you need to learn about class because that is a good way to kind of understand your neighbor and why they might be oppressed in a way that you're not or um, maybe why you have a common cause with them when you might not think you do. Right. All of these things. We told you that last week. And this week we're telling you that it's actually way more complicated than just class. There's a whole lot of other factors that go into our understanding of the um, political and economic like landscape. Right. There's racial capitalism. There's the way that gender influences um, the way we like, you know, think about the like the types of work that come natural to people and all kinds of other things, too. There's a whole type. I mean, there's a whole bunch of like, I, I think, other subsections of this that we haven't talked about. Um, which, uh, you know, it's an hour long podcast, folks, we can't do it all. But um, there's more stuff out there. There's more ways to kind of like, bridge these connections between class and different types of identity politics, I think Marxists ought to be really attentive to. Um, But Dean, let's talk about this. Let's talk about why Christians should care about class reductionism. Um, Let's 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 turn to that page a bit. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, one thing that I really have I think gathered from liberation theology as a tradition is that it has a really expansive idea of what the poor means as a category. And I think that is right. Um, You know, for liberation theologians, the poor is not just an economic category. It involves every kind of marginalization. 
Um, we had Hector on the show, uh, Hector Sarah Ferrer, a little while back, uh, one of my colleagues at the Institute for Christian Studies here. And something he told me that always sticks with me is like, you know, if you're sitting in a room full of a bunch of different people, uh, the category of the poor, if you're a liberation theologian, might kind of bounce around. Like uh, there's all kinds of structural oppression that you walk into when you walk into a room full of different people. But then there's kind of, you know, some people might feel more or less uh, capable of speaking or contributing or being heard. Um, and uh, there's this kind of Christian obligation to, like, hear who's being silenced and try to create space for those people to be able to uh, contribute and to be, um, you know, to be able to bring themselves fully into uh, a situation as an agent and a person with something to, to say if they if they want to. And I think that is like a good Christian reason to pay attention to all these different kinds of um, forms of oppression. Like it's true that in lots of situations, uh, class is the, you know, in, in every situation, class is an important factor, right? Uh, there's no situation which class doesn't matter and class matters specifically. It has specific things that it, it, it sort of uh, relates to and has to do with and all that kind of stuff. But uh, there's going to be all kinds of other things that pile on top of class that uh, might change the way that we understand the sort of distribution of uh, oppression in a situation or a room. And like I said, Christians with this kind of bigger category of the poor can sort of find a way to uh, uh, attune ourselves to that that shifting terrain of oppression. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to lay it all out there. I mean, you know, in a time where I think white supremacy is one of the motivating ideas within white evangelicalism, um, I think these are the tools that you really need to use to maybe think around that situation. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I know that's been the case for me, right? Like, I've definitely come out of a white evangelical tradition. And that's um, a lot of this has been really helpful for kind of thinking through all of that and exactly what it all means, right? At the end of the day, though, if you are a Christian and you think that, like, what it means to be a Christian is to throw in with people, uh, you know, with with the poor in this, like, big liberation theology sense, if that's, like, what Christians are supposed to do, then you're not going to be able to even see who these people are and, like, why, why the system is working in the way that it is without these tools, right? Without understanding class analysis, but not, but, but also not understanding racial capitalism or the way that patriarchy works or the way that heterosexism works or you know whatever all of these things together um you need all of these things uh together you need a way to be able to speak about them together just like Kim, uh, kimberly crenshaw says so i, I think that uh, these are these are tools it, for christians to use if you uh if you care about the world if you care about other people if you care about doing things then these are these are the things that you should have in your toolbox yeah i think that's right um one thing I would add to at the end here is, you know, like we brought up a handful of people that I hope people go check out, whatever, Stuart Hall, Amore Armstrong, Cedric Robinson, um, Sylvia Federici, Rigori, all, all these, you know, a whole list of folks. Um, but I think the craziest thing is, or the wildest thing is like, the more you try to understand all these oppressions on their own terms, the more you realize exactly how complicated all this stuff is. Um, even down to intersectionality, right? Intersectionality is one way that I think is is really compelling for organizational purposes. Like it's a language that people can kind of get on board with in a way that it might be harder to get on board with other kinds of conversations. But like there is debate within, you know, people trying to figure out the exact constellation between race and capitalism and gender and all that kind of stuff about whether or not intersectionality is the most uh, effective sort of tool for doing that, right? 
Um, so I don't mean to say that like everything that we've uh, identified are like the ultimate ways of putting everything together that it's very simple. But it's just to say, like, at some point you have to start like getting your hands dirty and figuring out like what works and what's going to help you attend to all these different things. I guess what I'm saying is the toolbox is like extremely messy, <laughs> but you have to like pick them up and go to work. Otherwise, you're never going to figure out how anything uh, operates in the first place. Yeah, I think that sounds good to me. All right, folks, you heard it here. <laughs> Learn about class. Don't be a class reductionist. Don't be that kind of Marxist. Be the good <laughs> kind and uh, figure out how to attend all of these um, these like sort of co-contributing uh, forms of oppression. It's a it's a struggle worth your time. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can find us on Twitter at the Magnificast. You can find us on email. You can find us on your email uh, at the Magnificast at gmail.com. Uh, you can we have like a Facebook group called the Magnificast Basement. It goes in waves of activity. Uh, it ebbs and flows. You could be the one to, to increase its activity uh, if you wanted to called the Magnificast Basement. Our music, as always, is by Amoria Armstrong and the Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, you keep your hoods up. You keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up. Well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would else 